Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists who are working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Interviews are conducted with individuals who are doing clinical work, as well as leading attachment theory researchers. Your host, Karen Doe Buckwalter, will introduce you to Sandra Lindemann, who will discuss her work in exploring polyvagal theory. Sandra Lindemann is a certified TheraPlay therapist, supervisor, and trainer, and is the senior training advisor for the TheraPlay Institute in Evanston, Illinois, USA. She has a master's degree in social work from Loyola University, Chicago, and completed a one-year clinical externship in the Family Systems Program at the Institute for Juvenile Research at the University of Illinois, Chicago. She also has a master's degree in speech-language pathology from Northwestern University and worked in that field for many years. Sandra has been with the TheraPlay Institute since 1990, has served as executive director from 1993 to 1999, and currently serves on the Business Development, Research, and Training Committees. And now your host, Karen Doyle Buckholder. Hello, everybody. Today, Sandra Lindemann is my guest, and she is the training advisor at the TheraPlay Institute and has also, in recent years, been studying a lot about polyvagal theory. So, Sandra, welcome. It's good to have you. And we would like to hear a little Thanks, bit- Thanks, Karen, I'm excited. Good, good. And if you could share with the listeners just a little bit about your background and kind of this journey that, that brought you to studying this theory so extensively. Um, I've been at the TheraPlay Institute since 1990, and I've had a variety of positions over the years. As you said, now um, I'm the training advisor. Uh, professionally, I have a master's in um, speech language pathology. There's something to stumble on. <laughs> and um, also <laughs> a master's in social work. And I'm um, licensed in Illinois as an LCSW. And now that you and I are South Carolina people, uh, you have this too, I know. We're licensed independent social workers in South yeah. Carolina. Yes. Um, <clears throat> yeah. As part of my work at TheraPlay, um, I've been a trainer and a supervisor around the world. I also train new trainers. Now that we have more trainers with all kinds of expertise, now it's become a really big group effort. I've written several chapters in TheraPlay editions two and three, and other chapters about TheraPlay in the um, psychotherapy, play therapy literature. And I was a part of the international spread of TheraPlay starting in the late 1990s to the present. I've helped organize seven international conferences since the first one in 2003, and I do a lot of presenting nationally and internationally. And I guess I say all those things because all those things have led me to where I am now. Um, I especially like connecting people with each other. You know, when I meet someone in a training who I think, wow, you should talk to Donna Gates because she's an expert trainer in domestic violence and play, or, you know, things like that. Wow, someone's interested in EMDR. Well, there's 
uh, Glenda um, from Ecuador, and there's Phyllis Strauss from Israel, and um, and people within the United States, you know, who are also EMDR trained, Anna Gomez, Emily Jernberg, so things like that, that really makes me happy. Another thing is I'm like the historian uh, of TheraPlay because I've been around so long. It just means you're old. And um, then also, <laughs> also I happen to have a, a really good memory. I like really forget anything, which can be kind of burdensome. But um, so I'm likely to remember the date something happened or something strange, you know. But so shall I just go on and tell you about my more recent Yes, yes, because I really am interested. I know that you're so excited about how polyvagal theory is relevant to the clinical work of those of us, in particular using attachment-based models, but probably all clinical work to some degree. And so, yes, yes. it would be great. Yeah. Okay. So since 2017, um, I, when I look back on this, I find um, first, starting in 2010, I had a client with selective mutism af after medical trauma with very severe defensiveness, being very immobilized in many situations in response, in going to school, not responding to teachers or other children, crying, um, obviously not speaking. Um, and she made a very rapid change in TheraPlay. I wrote about her, I presented about her many times, I thought about her a lot. And I guess her response to TheraPlay, you could say, made me bold. Um, <laughs> it, uh, we had it on film. <laughs> Not that, it, it was like a little microcosm of the kinds of things we see in TheraPlay anyway, the change and the, but, um, uh, like, for instance, when I say it made me bold, I presented, I had an opportunity to go to Tulane and present at, at Neurology Grand Rounds in front of Charles Zena. And I was like, totally confident to do that. It's like, sure, because it was so strong. The evidence was so strong about the change and the therapy process, you know, making that change because nothing else changed with her. Mm -hmm. And it had been a, a, a protracted problem for a year and a half, you know. And she's only five anyway, but um, okay. So then the second thing happened is I started to do some consulting at the Children's Center in Salt Lake. Um, and this is the program uh, that Doug Goldsmith is the executive director of. And Doug is the co-editor of Attachment Theory in Clinical Work with Children, a book that I knew of anyway. And um, we connected, Phyllis Booth and I connected with Doug uh, on a trip to Salt Lake. And then I returned many times to train and consult with the staff there and to deepen their experience with TheraPlay and mine, because it was wonderful to go back to the same place over and over again. And the thing was, we brought this work to the therapeutic preschool classrooms, group TheraPlay or Sunshine Circles. And again, we had a very good, rather fast response, even in an attachment-focused setting. So what was it that was really making the difference? And what I've come to think um, is, and this relates to what I'm going to talk about more, it was the dose in a group session of 15 or 20 or 30 minutes of intentional 
giving of safety cues and creating a neuroception of safety, allowing these children to have social engagement with the leader and with each other, that I believe was the factor that made the difference. That these children calmed down. They started to use each other's names more. There was a more caring, cohesive classroom atmosphere. It made a difference in the, to the teachers. Um, so anyway, all of that was happening. Then the third thing was the actual study of polyvagal theory for our curriculum updates and so on. So, so it's my interest to be the one to call. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, oh, Karen. I was yeah. just going to say, I know uh, just for the listeners, the term neuroception that you've, you've just used a few times is a gorgeous concept also. Um, yeah. so. Yes. Yes. Yes, you're right. And it's something I will talk about later, but it is um, a non-conscious, um, immediate uh, reaction to either cues of safety or danger. And, um, you know, it, it isn't something you have time to think about because it's part of your um, autonomic nervous system, your fight, flight, freeze, your survival system. And so what I was saying is that these children, I believe, because the leader was giving safety signals through their face, voice, their gestures, and the kinds of things that they were leading the children to do together in the group play, that that um, created in the children, it, it actually triggered a neuroception of safety for them. And when you are feeling safe, then you are able to be it activates your social engagement system, which is another term I want to talk about, another porgeous term and what that means. Um, and, I'll, and I'll say it right now because, so when I invited him to be the speaker at our seventh conference, which was to be in 2016, then he sent me more of his work. And I read about um, how the therapist's social engagement system the use of their face, voice, head gestures can send signals of safety to the client and activate the client's social engagement system. So I must say, prior to that, in the Theraplay third edition, we had it a bit wrong. <laughs> we said, you have to feel safe to be socially engaged which is true, but it kind of sounds like you have to work on safety first and then you can work on engagement, but that's not really what he means. What he means is that the cues from one person, this begins with parent-child interaction. When you have a safe parent giving good care, sending those cues to the child, it activates their baby's social engagement system. That's how it begins. So I, I read that article and I wrote to him and I said, in TheraPlay, we do that all the time. We're doing face-to-face -face interactions. We're using our face in certain ways, our voice in certain ways. We're using, as you know, Karen, a kind of motherese, almost parentese, um, very often, or some form of it to speak to our clients and the parents. Um, that we're actually sending signals of safety and activating the clients. I'm going to start 
shortening it, SES, or Social Engagement System. And so when I wrote about that, um, then I told him about that and, you know, explained more about TheraPlay. He, by the way, had seen the videotape of the child with selective mutism. So he, he had a sense of what I was talking about. Um, he asked me to write a chapter in his book. And um, uh, at any rate, um, you know, that was kind of the, the, the way um, I was invited to write the chapter in his clinical applications of polyvagal theory, the emergence of polyvagal informed treatments, which is due out in April. I studied at the Cape Cod Institute in 2015 with him. And in 2016, when he spoke at our conference, he mapped out the link between TheraPlay and polyvagal theory for us. And then in my writing of this chapter, I've continued to understand it better and better. Um, and just to wrap this part up, so my understanding of the child with selective mutism um, changed a bit because I was thinking, okay, this little girl in two or three sessions is now smiling more in the classroom and appears to be listening to the other kids' conversations. Now, that cannot be that um, I have now had this great relationship building with her or she's feeling more attached to her parents. In fact, she had a very healthy attachment relationship with her parents. She was just severely anxious. Um, uh, she was afraid in, um, in uh, she had a sense of social danger in when she wasn't with her parents or at home. Um, one other thing, extending that to other children with attachment, other attachment issues, another little girl who had been adopted, um, you know, as a toddler from um, an orphanage in another country under very deprived circumstances and was very irritated, very aggressive, physically aggressive with her adoptive parents, even as a baby and toddler. She was a baby. Um, and when I saw her as a five-year-old, um, she was school phobic and having huge tantrums and pretty clearly was in like a fight flight situation. The child with selective mutism was more in a uh, freeze um, defensive position. And anyway, this child said after a few sessions, I don't know what Sandra is doing, but it makes my brain calmer. Mm. And again, <laughs> it's like it's not possible that we have helped her already like well you could say of course it's a part of attachment but we were doing something which we've done in therapy from the beginning 50 years of it that was having an impact and I believe what it means is these children felt safer um, Porges writes about the transformative power of feeling safe. And I mean, that's amazing. And what he's saying is before a therapist thinks about trying to change something for a client or a family system, um, the therapist should be thinking about does does this child, does this client feel safe or not in this very neurophysiological way? 
that polyvagal theory describes. And I think, you know, he's just saying all therapists should be thinking about that before they attempt to do something. And especially, I think, for people in more directive therapies like TheraPlay, that is something we should be thinking about. And as you said, it's important for all therapists. I see discussion about defenses, about fight, flight, freeze, about social engagement in many chapters of your book, Karen, of attachment theory in action. Um, and it because it's such critical baseline information. And actually, although the polyvagal theory, when you read it, it's like, whoa, this is dense, this is difficult. As therapists, as people who know about trauma, and just as human beings, it's actually pretty understandable because these responses of feeling it's actually Balin and Hughes who said like there are either two positions. You either feel safe and open or you're in some kind of defensive mode. This is true of you, me, now, today, <laughs> for the rest of our lives. It's true of the parents. It's true of the kids we work with. And it's such valuable information when you're in the safe state. This is sort of the bottom line of polyvagal theory. When you're in the safe state, then you can be socially connected. Then you can use your higher level skills like language, like thinking. You use your prefrontal cortex and, you know, all of this. Um, and um, as a matter of fact, I'll, I'll just before I go into any more detail, I'll just tell you. When Stephen Porges saw the video of the little girl with selective mutism and he saw her change and I talked with him about it, and I started talking about attunement and attachment and uh, regulation and everything. He kind of said, yeah, yeah, okay, okay, I'll tell you what happened <laughs> with her. I'm like, okay, please tell me. <laughs> and he said, what you, what you did, in other words, the TheraPlay interaction, not what I, Sandra, did, but what TheraPlay did was it allowed her to regulate her own physiology so she could access her higher level skills. I don't think I will ever forget that because, um, you know, it means that the interaction allowed her to be in, um, you could say, although poor just doesn't use the term window of tolerance, he has started to use it a bit because he knows therapists do, She's in that window. It means being in the safe, socially engaged state, not mobilized into fight flight, not immobilized into freeze. And when she's there, then she can use her higher level skills, which for her was the ability to talk to me and to other people eventually in other places that you know, and she could think. And one time she said to me, one time a long time ago, I didn't want to do this, but now I'm happy to do this. And um, I like to play, I'm happy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she's now putting into words at this higher level, she's reflecting on her experience, which, of course, for this child, she mentally may have been doing that all along, but she didn't share it with us, so mm -hmm. we, we don't know. All we saw her when she was with other people was very, very shut down. So all of that makes me 
really excited. And as a trainer, I really want to know this information. Some people are happy to just do the treatment and go with it. But if I'm in the position of having to explain to people why it works, then I want to know this. <laughs> and, um, and I, you know, I think other, other trainers should, uh, but anyway, uh, that's kind of where I am now. And then I have more, you know, I've alluded to some key points about polyvagal already, but I have a few more things that I can say about it, if you wish, um, to deepen this a little bit. Um, so Karen, tell me, I, I know um, the time passes quickly. We're probably yeah. at the end already. But tell me. We, we, can, we can talk a little bit more, but I, I do want to ask you, um, you know, there may be people listening who are like, well, this isn't exactly new to me. You know, I understood um, right brain things and, and how attachment and trauma resolution is sometimes related to mm-hmm. the body and eye contact, yeah. movement, and rhythm. So what were, what would you point out as the aha experience that, no, wait, this is not just that. This is something different. Yes, that is um, a very good question. And so I'm kind of going to some of my notes. I'm trying to move down them. Um, so let me say a few things that will get to that, and I'll get to it quickly. Okay. Um, so I've already talked about, you You um, asked me to define neuroception. So there are like these basic things that have to be understood if you're going to uh, think about this. And neuroception is one. We're talking about the autonomic nervous system, um, which goes from the brainstem to your internal organs, and it kind of helps you uh, regulate those internal organs. Um, The social engagement system, which I've referred to many times, is a very key thing about it, and um, the hierarchical response to threat, which I've also alluded to when your number one stage would be in safety, you're calm, relaxed, and have optimal arousal. The second, now here's the thing, you don't go to one or the other. According to Porges, the next you don't go to either fight, flight, or freeze. It is hierarchical. Uh, and the second stage is danger. If you feel danger, you're mobilized. That's hyperarousal, fight, flight. And it could even be very fleeting. And then the third stage is if you truly, if, if that doesn't help you, if being mobilized does not help you, then you experience a greater danger of actual life threat, and then you become immobilized, a hyperarousal, a freeze, a compliant state, you know. So that's just one, like, little thing here that I learned. And frankly, I keep learning things all the time and kind of go back and go, oh, my gosh, okay, I didn't get that before. How could I not? Mm -hmm. But anyway, that's important. Now, but let me go to the next thing because. Okay, so this is what I, there are a few things. One second. Okay, so that the safety is really a physiological state. And what Porges is saying, this is important, I think, that safety is not just a correlate of emotional, um, the emotions and so on, that it is 
foundational to it and must be dealt with. Like the physiology has to be acknowledged and worked with. Um, it's not just a correlate of emotions. Um, and so I think that's important. Um, and here's another, so let me go, I already said a couple things about it. It's not just the removal of features of danger, but it requires active presentation of safety features. It's not mm -hmm. good enough to use words, to reassure and so on, to say, oh, the bad people are locked up or you're safe here. That does not have the impact uh, of then this social engagement piece that what human beings do is we seek cues in the faces and voices of others and we form trusting relationships with people who emit cues of safety. Mm -hmm. Now, in terms of attachment relationships, Porges is actually saying this comes, it is tied up with all of these attachment enhancing activities of a parent and child, but it actually comes first. And when you think about it, what he's saying is that the safety cues from the adult through their social engagement system, allow the child to get closer and be in greater proximity, allow contact, and then the development of trusting relationships. And if we imagine a parent, for instance, with a harsh or angry face and voice, we can pretty immediately think about, will that child allow proximity to them? Will they, I mean, you know, they may not be able to get away from it, but will there be contact? Will that child trust that adult? And he's saying, Porges is saying, this comes before attachment, okay, mm -hmm. for what it's worth. I'm just throwing it out there. That's what he says. Um, and, okay, I'm going to go past uh, another thing. And then let me see, what do I want to, what else do I want to say? Um, Okay, I already said this part. I'm looking at my notes, obviously, and I can share these notes with you later. Um, okay, let me let me tie this to some other thinking. You know, for instance, Shore talks about how to treat relational trauma. And so he himself is saying, as we know, focus on the pre-verbal, facial, vocal, gestural communication, which develops the limbic system, right brain function and affect regulation. Shore calls these things emotional communication. And so it's, they're talking about the same thing. Um, he's talking about limbic system development and Porges is talking about something even deeper, um, brainstem um, autonomic uh, regulatory system development, which has to go hand in hand with this limbic system. And if you don't have it at the, ANS level, you won't get it at the limbic level. Uh, Balin and Hughes in their neurobiology of attachment focused therapy say the face, the voice, the touch are how caregivers get inside a child's brain. And I just thought, oh, that's such a good way to say it. Mm -hmm. um, and they actually talk about five core brain systems, which are developing in early life. And here's a link. The way, listen to this, the way these core systems, I'll tell you what they are in a minute. Well, I'll tell you. Social engagement is first. Self-defense 
is second. That's literally saying open, safe is number one. Being defensive and fight, flight, freeze is number two. Third one is social switching between those two, which is what I was just talking about, the ability to stay in the safe state, uh, not be triggered into mobilization or immobilization. And then they say the way that, oh, and there are two more systems, um, social pain and stress reactivity. And the way these five systems develop in a particular child will be expressed in their attachment patterns. It's like, whoa, okay, mm -hmm. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah. Isn't that? Yeah. Karen, yeah. yeah. Okay. And so here's one more thing. And then I want to go on. And I know I can't talk forever. One more thing, even like Ker Teresa Kestley, who is a play therapist, a mm -hmm. Sandra person. Yes, um, I've read her book. Uh, uh, it's her book, great book about the what the interpersonal neurobiology, neurobiology of play. Yeah. Right. That's a really good book. But then after that, she wrote an article in the Journal of Play Therapy where she hones it down even more. And she talks about three theories that support the neurobiological changes you know, that we see in all play therapy. So here we broaden out. And I believe this. She is talking about the emotional systems, circuits, excuse me, the emotional circuits that Panksepp discusses. Porges's polyvagal theory and polyvagal play and positive psychology, Fredrickson and others. She also talks about mindfulness, presence, Siegel, but she kind of says these three threads of Panksepp, Porges, Fredrickson kind of support the changes that we see in play therapy. Mm -hmm. And I mm -hmm. thought that was important and interesting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, there's one, I've talked a lot about this. There's one more thing I want to say that um, I think is, in, I want to get it in here because it's my, oh, well, okay. Here's, here's another important PVT thing I want to say. That these infant caregiver reciprocal interactions, okay, that, you know, the, the healthy parent-child relationship and the back and forth and the attunement and the mm -hmm. safety signals and all of that. He says, nurture the child, obviously, keep the child alive. But they are also neural exercises that enable the social cues of safety from the mother to regulate the infant's physiology. Sorry. They're neural exercises that enable the social cues of safety from the mother or father to regulate the infant's physiology and behavioral state. And in fact, it goes back and forth. They're bi-directional and reciprocal. The mom's safety cues calm the infant. And when the infant's calm, it calms the mom. <laughs> it strengthens, he calls it social bonds because he's coming from a little different area, but attachment, strengthens attachment, fosters the capacity to co-regulate, and is, here we go, internal working model, a prototype for future social relationships. So there's another tie-in with what we know already. But here's the, like, the kicker or the summary. It enables, this interaction enables social behavior to regulate physiological state. 
how do we, here's this link between the way we act and how it can actually regulate the physiological state of another person. Mm -hmm. Um, You can think on that a little bit. I Mm -hmm. mean, but I think that's important. Okay. And then, okay, there's, you know, um, and in fact, okay, we always, you know, we talk about self-regulation. Okay, listen to this one. Here's, I've got these little pithy quotes. So self-regulation skills, which, you know, are typically a goal of child treatments, are, and here's a quote, a product of the nervous system that can maintain feelings of safety in the absence of receiving cues from another person. Mm, mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Porges has the book, um, the first book in 2011, which is, is is written for scientists. It's very complex. In 2017, he just last year published um, a pocketbook for polyvagal theory. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, done as a series of conversations, interviews, and it's a lot easier to understand. It still mm-hmm. is kind of complicated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yes. Um, Okay, two more things I really want to say, Karen. Okay. So another thing Gorgeous says, in fact, in writing this chapter, you know, I finally I went back to the first chapter of Porges in 2011. At the end of the first chapter, he has this thing about, so how could you help children with attachment problems or who have been traumatized? And he says, well, there are two ways to help children. You can either alter the caregiving environment so that it will appear and be safer for children and less likely to evoke mobilization or immobilization. And then, okay, so there's our work with parents or anyone's work with parents. Mm -hmm. If it focuses on the parents giving safety cues to their children. So one thing is you can alter the caregiving environment. Another thing is you can intervene directly with children. He says, you can exercise the neural regulation of brainstem structures. You can stimulate the neural regulation of the social engagement system. Okay? And my position is, um, okay, so I think therapies should do that. I think TheraPlay is completely about that. Mm -hmm. And, um, okay, so two more things I want to say. there are not actually three physiological states of um, safety or mobilization or immobilization. There are five. There are two more states that are kind of hybrid states. One is play, a very particular polyvagal kind of play. And the other is immobilization, but without fear. So let me say something about those. Play, the kind of play he's talking about, all right, the reason it's another physiological state is it's on the border of mobilization. Not all mobilization is bad. Mobilization has to do with excitement, curiosity, learning. It's just when it is super high into hyperarousal that it goes into fight flight. So that polyvagal play, which is face-to-face, reciprocal, synchronous play, um, not solitary, you know, not actually looking down um, at um, a dollhouse or something. It's reciprocal face-to-face synchronous play is on the border. It's mobilizing, but you're still in a safe state. 
so then the other immobilization without fear sounds, you know, scary and creepy. All it means is we have it when we cuddle with someone, when we sleep, when we're very, very relaxed and close to others. Another way to talk about it is calling, it's called rest and digest sometimes. It, it is, happens when we're eating too. So then I think about, here's my, my, what I want to say about TheraPlay itself. TheraPlay uses all of those three good states. It uses social engagement. It uses polyvagal play. It even uses rest and digest in the treatment itself directly. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where its power is coming from. In addition to all the other good things it does, you know, And but this is like its foundation. And that's why I'm so excited. I found the foundation, I think. Yeah. So here's what my, yeah, Yuka, our wonderful colleague, Yuka, Makala, Finnish psychiatrist, has such elegant ways of talking about things. And I asked him to be the co-author on that chapter because Yuka knows everything. Uh, (laughs) But uh, anyway, his description, (laughs) he had had already written, lectured about polyvagal and so on. And I knew that. So I thought he'd be an ideal collaborator. So here's the thing. He said, Theraplay gives both the child and the parent new ways to enter and stay in the safe, socially engaged state. Mm. I think that's really elegant. New ways, yeah, Mm -hmm. that they hadn't considered before, perhaps, to enter and to stay in the safe, socially engaged state. Mm. And and the the ways we do it line up with our dimensions. Mm -hmm. Engagement is related to therapist using their own prosodic voice, uh, melodic voice, um, and positive facial expressions, their own SES to activate the child and the parents, neuroception of safety, and their SESs. That's always kind of hard to deal with. Uh, SES, apostrophe S, or something. Mm-hmm. That play Play is a way to stay in the safe state. And that giving and receiving nurture is a way to stay in the safe state. Now that covers engagement. I call, you know, challenge play kind of goes together and it covers Mm -hmm. nurture. Mm -hmm. Where's the structure? Okay. As we know in TheraPlay, it isn't any one activity. It isn't any one dimension it's how it's woven together in a session where you move and Porges alluded to this in his 2016 talk to us where he said that it's moving between in general not just about theraplay but we happen to do this in theraplay we move between states of um safety a bit of mobilization with the play, immobilization without fear of rest and digest states in our session. And that is what widens the window of tolerance. Mm -hmm. That is what leads to greater regulation and resilience. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I'm excited. And I think, you know, all treatments that employ pieces of this also have a part of this polyvagal theory you know in them Mm -hmm. um and so you know there are a few more details uh uh, well let me say 
one more thing and then I truly will stop. Okay. There's something that just realized that is part of polyvagal theory and it's important. It's called the face heart connection because you might think, well, so why is it that our, this is critical, you know, why is it that our faces and our voices would have this calming effect? It kind of intuitively makes sense because we see it happen. We understand it. But, what he, what he found is that within the brainstem, the cranial nerve nuclei for the muscles, for the nuclei, the, sorry, the cranial nerves that go to the musculature of the face, the pharynx, the larynx, the middle ear, um, the nuclei for that, he is proposing, is integrated with the ventral vagus, this is where the polyvagal comes in, that goes essentially to control and regulate your heart and your lungs so that there is an integration between the actions of the face um, and listening and vocalizing and the calming of heart rate and breathing. Mm. That's the heart connection and it you see because the cranial nerve nuclei are there for not just your facial muscles but also literally what go, the what goes to your middle ear um to tighten or loosen the eardrum and uh to the uh larynx for the voice and so on so it has to do with um how um and it's it, and it's within these reciprocal, bidirectional, uh, back and forth of the parent and child. How and of course, this is all the baby actually can control when they're very little. They can move their face. They can do things with their voice. They can move their heads around. You know, they don't have a lot of other intentional volitional control of their limbs and so on. That's what they've got when they're born. And it's the basic way that parents communicate with them. And this social behavior comes to regulate physiology because of the connection in the brains of the parents and, um, and the babies of the face-heart connection. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay? Yeah. So that's why people think it's really complicated. But, I mean, if we, you know, if we think about it, um, just think about as a as a healthy adult here. What's it like when um, someone talks to you but they don't look at you, mm -hmm. or they have a voice that sounds kind of you know real deep and booming, maybe or kind of scary? And and, and well, I'm putting mm -hmm. a word to it, but you know, it's kind of like it gives us a, a feeling, and um, uh, it doesn't like feel quite right. Now we can. <clears throat> probably remain, you know, in a safe and open state because uh, we're more inclined to think, well, I wonder what it is about that person that <laughs> is having them do that. But a lot of people can't, don't do that and can't do that. And they might, you know, be triggered by it. So it, these experiences are not just like experiences of childhood. This, this physiology is with us. It keeps us alive. It keeps mm -hmm. us safe. But mostly we want it to keep us open. Mm -hmm. not defensive staying right. in the open state the safe state and the calm connected state is like our goal for all therapists really right so that's why that's why i think it's cool
Yes, 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 it's very, very helpful. I think, um, you know, I've heard some talk about this is some of the science behind maybe what we sometimes call a gut level reaction to someone that we can't really figure out, but yes. we feel something. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes, um, uh, that's exactly it. And I didn't go that far. Yeah, right. No, you're right. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. So I, I do think it, it's very relevant and very exciting. And I think, um, you know, really appreciate your eagerness to study the theory and see how it applies to us. And very much appreciate what you were able to to share today about it so yeah i'm i'm just thinking back um earlier when you said you know maybe we had it a little wrong you know that mm -hmm. maybe it was almost mm -hmm. backwards that that the this uh neuroception had to be there before any of the other stuff could work is that what you were trying to say in a way yeah um, well we rather we than it as you yeah yeah Yes, yes, yes. Rather than we did all of that and that's what created um, the feeling. Right, right. And not even, I mean, we weren't so sophisticated to even think of neuroception. We had this, and this is also helpful about it, we had this bigger sense of, well, what does it mean to be safe? We have to create safety before we can socially engage. Right. Know? So we do that by being structured, by being predictable. But I mean, he has a very specific, um, definition of yeah. safety yeah. and that it helps to know that because then exactly. it's really true you know right <laughs> and i think it helps so it helps um, not to be fuzzy yeah and i think it helps not just to legitimize the work but to focus it you know i i feel like yeah. a lot of theraplay when is about focusing interactions in a specific way with a specific purpose that's why it's different than maybe a parent that just randomly played, you know, a game that's like a theraplay activity. The whole idea right. is that we are doing it in a very targeted, specific, focused manner. And I think that this right. helps, I think that this helps us with that. So yeah. Yes. Yes, I totally agree, Karen. And I have to say we should tell the listeners that the reason we sometimes are talking on each other is that <laughs> we can't see each other because of my goofy computer in the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. Uh, it doesn't allow us to look at each other. We don't even have, this is the, this, Karen, this is the breakdown of social engagement systems. No. <laughs> yes, I, I think we even have a little delay in what I'm saying when you hear yes. it. Yeah. So anyway, but thank you so, so much, Sandra. And you know, many of us appreciate your willingness to dive so deeply into this, having week-long, going to week-long workshops on polyvagal theory. <laughs> we can all well, benefit. Karen, thank you. Karen, I, I, need, I need to tell you one thing that's related to this theory. When I considered, he had already asked me to write the chapter, and then I wanted to go to Cape Cod. And, and learn from him. But I thought, wow, you know, of course, then I, I worry about appearing stupid in front of him or something. But the only, I was afraid of that. But the only thing I was more afraid of was getting it all wrong. <laughs> so I thought I better go. <laughs> I gotta go. 
Well, good. And it certainly appears that you got it right, especially with this recent request to do a chapter for, for his book. So we congratulate yeah. you on that as well. And, and thank, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, traumaattachmentcenter.com, or subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you enjoyed our broadcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, log on to traumaattachmentcenter.com. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, developmental trauma, and attachment theory.